I'm going to take you on the journey that I have been on myself as I just wanted to put all the pieces together. We're going to consider the morning of Jesus' death. First, I will remind you of something I know you know. Time is in God's hands, right? The days of our lives are in God's hands. The day of our own death is in God's hands. And when we say all this, we're acknowledging that God is in control. He is sovereign and wise. He has a plan. His plan is good. So I want us to keep all of that in mind as we look at six events, six so-called trials that occurred on the morning of Jesus' death. For ease of discussion and the timeline of events, sometimes I will be referring to the day of Jesus' death as Friday because that's like default day and that's what we celebrate every year at Easter, Good Friday. So that's just what comes out. If you see it as Thursday, then you can process and think that Thursday is the day of his death. It's just going to come out as Friday regularly for me. All of the six trials that we're going to look at occurred before 9 a.m., roughly 9 a.m. That is the time that Mark reports that Jesus was actually nailed to the cross at Golgotha. Mark 15, 25 in the New King James says, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the third hour is understood to be, as the Net Bible puts it, nine o'clock in the morning. So we're using that as a, uh, a point of time in the morning. 9 a.m., Jesus is nailed to the cross. He's being nailed to the cross. So everything that we're going to look at has happened before 9 a.m. And that has just been mind-boggling to me, fascinating to me, that all of this could occur really early Friday morning. It shows me that God was in control. And it reminds me that he is in control every day and every moment of my life. The first trial occurred in the dark of night. So that's the first one we'll look at. In the dark of night, this is most likely after midnight. So it's actually Friday. And this is the first so-called trial being held. Jesus was examined by Annas, who was the former high priest. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. Annas was at the high priest villa, and he questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and he was trying to find some kind of accusation against him. John 18, 19 says, the high priest, and it's referring to Annas here. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I'm not going to go into all of the discussion during all of these trials because I'm painting the picture of the one after the other and the timeline of what happened. Next, it is still in the darkness, those early morning hours long before dawn. So you could think, 
1 a.m. to 3 a.m., you know, the middle of the dark night. This is Friday morning. It's the second miscarriage of justice occurring as Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, and the Sanhedrin, some of the Sanhedrin with him, were questioning him, accusing him, and condemning him. In Mark 14:64, it says that they said to each other, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So this is in the dark of night. Meanwhile, while they were questioning Jesus, Peter has been by the fire, warming himself, denying Jesus. And we know from Luke twenty-two sixty that a rooster crowed after those three denials. And just as we're looking at the time frame of things, you know, roosters crow really early in the morning and they sometimes are crowing not at sunrise, but before the sun actually comes up as it starts to get light. I do love the sunrise time, but really my favorite time is before the sun actually shows itself. So I'm very familiar. My favorite time is about that hour before the sun comes up where it's been black night. I can see the stars. And then there's a hint and the sky starts to lighten and get a little gray or then maybe there's a glow of the sun and the clouds. So as we are looking at these times, I'm thinking of what I have seen myself of the 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 break of day. And that's where we are next. The third stage of the Jewish trials begin at the first blush of the day. So it's Friday morning now. Dr. Bookman has traveled to Israel many times and on one or more occasions he has tried to see this first blush of day. He wanted to know what time did that happen and on one of his spring trips he said 4:30 in the morning. I looked at the calendar of sunrise times for this spring and right now uh, uh, I checked March 28th because it's the day before the time change. So on March 28th, sunrise is at 5.30 in the morning. March 29th, it's at 6.30 in the morning. So that's because time change, not because of the sun really, you know, skipping an hour. But it starts to get light about an hour before sunrise. So his 4.30 a.m. matches up to the uh, springtime sunrise time at 5.30, even if the sun is coming up at at 6.30. We could talk about 5.30. These are generally when it happened, just to help you understand how early and how much is going on even before sunrise. Wow. And I've shown you each account here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that state the early morning timing when Jesus was taken from the high priest villa to the hall of hewn stones, which is at the temple. And they, uh, they the Sanhedrin, are going to cross-examine Jesus in their formal trial during the public daytime when the sun light of the day has broken. So Matthew 27, one early in the morning. And I gave them all to you in the NIV. So you could just see how they put it as they're referring to the same period of time, early in the morning, very early in the morning and at daybreak, Luke twenty two sixty six. at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people Both the chief priests and teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. And 
at this council now, the formal trial at the first blush of day, they all said to Jesus, are you then the son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The fourth trial is going to take place shortly after sunrise. And this is going to be the first examination of Jesus by Pilate, because there are two. And as we're just thinking about what time of day it is, and um, it could have been around 630 in the morning, 7 a.m., the Sanhedrin, with the temple guard still handling the prisoner Jesus, take him from the temple to Pilate, who lived at the palace of Herod the Great. Matthew 27, 2 says, When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. And John 18, 28 says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. I am always amazed that the Jews were able to get an audience with the governor so quickly, first thing in the morning. How did that come about? Nothing in these passages tell us that it was prearranged, but it probably was. We know some things that have already taken place, and we know the Sanhedrin were plotting days in advance with Judas. We know that Judas took Roman guards to arrest Jesus the night before. Well, how'd he get those? I mean, he had to make arrangements with the Roman rulers, right? The Romans were always on high alert for Jewish rebellions. So even if Judas didn't talk to Pilate or the guard, well, he had to talk to the guards to get them. But the guards, someone like a captain of the guards might have told Pilate, we're going to bring a rebel to you after we arrest him. So maybe the Romans told Pilate. Again, we know the Sanhedrin has been plotting and looking for a way to kill Jesus. So they might have told Pilate, we are going to bring a zealot to you who has been misleading and stirring up the people. We're bringing him to you Friday morning. However, this came about. We see the sovereignty of God here. He predestined the death of his son for this very day. And they got an audience with Pilate first thing in the morning. The praetorium was what is the Roman word, the Latin word, I guess, for the Roman governor's official residence. And that was true not just right there in Jerusalem, but all over Roman provinces, anywhere you went. If you wanted to find the ruler you'd, or where did he live, he lived at the praetorium. Pontius Pilate would have taken over Herod the Great's palace because it was the grandest, most luxurious, best place for him to live in Jerusalem. He would have redecorated it with Roman gods. And the Jews would have seen these as offensive idols. They were in the Gentile pagan palace now, these idols. So they did not go into Herod's palace, they did not go into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled. And it says that Pilate went out to them. That's John 18, 29. So we're still in this shortly after sunrise, first examination by Pilate. John 18, 29. Pilate went out to them. 
And Luke summarizes these things for us without giving us a lot of detail. But John does give us this detail. So he came out to the Jews and then Pilate goes back inside the praetorium and he summons Jesus and interrogates him. We see this in John 18, 33. Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And now is the discussion and discussion about truth. And Pilate ends it in John 18, 38. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now we know from Luke 23, 5, the Jews were infuriated. They were insisting loudly, all the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. That's when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and he tries to get his problem off of his hands by sending him to Herod Antipas. And this is still very early in the morning. I wonder again, how did they get an audience so early in the morning with Herod? Again, it's the sovereignty of God. Things are happening very quickly. There is a rush to judgment that the Jewish leaders are moving through Jerusalem. So we have the fifth trial. It is still early in the morning. It could be 7.30 or 8 a.m. It has to be before 9 a.m. And there still has to be one more time back with Pilate and more things going on there. So um, just trying to, to slot some hours in for us to process what's happening. Herod is either already awake or he gets a surprise start to his day when Jesus is brought to him. And we know that Herod was eager to see Jesus, so he meets him. Luke 23, 9, he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And Luke 23, 11, Herod with his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So with Jesus saying nothing, um, we know the Jews are there. Don't know how long he's there, but this does not have to be a, a long period of time. He's questioned. He's mocked. They put a gorgeous robe. Some translations and commentaries say this was like a white shining robe. And now Jesus is sent back to Pilate. And we come to the sixth trial. And this is just in the morning. Again, before 9 a.m. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And by this time of the morning, people in Jerusalem are awake. They're out and about town. We noted in our homework that Pilate summoned the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And these three groups represent the whole Jewish nation. That's Luke 23, 13. So people are out and about and they're coming to see what's going on. They are um, participating and agreeing. The Sanhedrin is stirring up the crowd most likely. Pilate repeatedly declares Jesus not guilty. You know that. Jesus is not at fault. They cannot find anything to accuse him of. He has done nothing deserving of death. 
Pilate wanted to release Jesus. Luke 23, 20. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Therefore, I will chastise him and let him go. Luke does not record the specifics of the Roman flogging, except to say that Pilate is going to chastise him. Just that one word. There it is, chastise him. Matthew doesn't say anything about it. Mark doesn't record specifics. John 19.1 says Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And you see the scourge is the Greek word mastigoo. And it means to beat with a lash or a whip, to flog, scourge, whip. And you read about it in your homework. One commentator says that John may have used this word, words mastigoo, to bring Isaiah 50, verse 6, to mind. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, mastigoo is the word used where it says struck, those who struck me. It's the same Greek word that John used. So you can see the, the similarity in thought. And this is an extreme word. I'll give you some notes on that. There were three forms of corporal punishment employed by the Romans, and they were in increasing degree of severity. First was, and I'm just going to try to say these Latin words, fustigatio, which was a beating, and then more severe was the flagellatio, the flogging, and then the third one was verberatio, the severe flogging. This is the scourging. So this is the most severe. The scourging is extreme. Flogging, scourging was part of the capital sentence used as a prelude to crucifixion. It was the most severe. People died sometimes when they were being flogged in this severe way. Frequently. As you read in the workbook, it was severe enough to rip a person's body open or cut muscle and sinew to the bone. It was carried out with a whip that had fragments of bone or pieces of metal that were bound into the tips and the the leather straps. If this whip hit Jesus' face, then you can imagine that it could have ripped his beard out. So ripping his beard out is not anything that's mentioned anywhere in the gospel. But every single thing that was prophesied about Jesus first coming was fulfilled exactly as it was prophesied. So just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So I believe that this gives us another uh, um, explanation of one of the things that happened to Jesus when he was flogged. And Pulling, even even if that's not how it happened, for the Jews, pulling out of the beard was a form of humiliation that was done to enemies. So 
that seems very strange to me that soldiers would go up, that temple guards would go up, that anybody would go up and pull his beard out. It, it could happen. But the, the flogging seems to be really what could have pulled the beard out. So after this horrible torture, at the hands of hardened Roman soldiers, Pilate presented Jesus to the people once again. And that is in John 19, 2 through 6. The soldiers had twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, The Jews, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. But they were insistent, Luke 23, 23 and 24. They were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. Again, all of this is happening before 9 a.m. That's the time that Mark reported that Jesus was nailed to the cross. One of the things that I was processing as I looked through this time was the journey of Jesus through Jerusalem. You have a map in your workbook, but I have a map on the back of your handout. And I've done some coloring in and I've drawn some colored lines. So I will walk you through with these lines from place to place. We start at the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take that green line to the high priestly villa. Then the blue line goes from the villa to the temple, the Hall of Hewn Stones. From there, the Hall of Hewn Stone, they would have taken him to the Praetorium. There's the um, palace in red. And from the Praetorium, he was taken to Herod's Palace. From Herod's Palace, he was taken back to the Praetorium. That's the, uh, a short purple line. And then from the Praetorium, he was taken outside the city walls. And that path, I, I picked inside the city. He could have been taken outside. There's a, there is a gate outside the Praetorium, so he could have gone around to the west and then north. Uh, to Golgotha, and this particular Golgotha on this map is the one that is at the Church of the Sepulcher. So it's fairly close to the uh, the city of Jerusalem, but it is outside the city walls. There were three trials before the Jewish religious leaders, and then there were the three trials or hearings before the Roman rulers. The Jews falsified evidence and twisted Jesus's words to declare him guilty of blasphemy and death. The Romans found him not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. But they still scourged and mocked and delivered Jesus over to the demand of the Jews. Peter will preach to the Jews at Pentecost and tell them in Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hand of Gentiles. The Jewish religious leaders had been plotting to put Jesus to death for months. But God had been planning to make Jesus our Savior since before time began. As we saw in a previous lesson, the Jews planned an execution, but God planned a sacrifice. God's predetermined plan was to give his innocent, faultless son as the substitute for sinful, wicked man. God had declared this prophecy through Isaiah that he would have a perfectly obedient and innocent servant who would achieve salvation for sinners. Isaiah spoke as a prosecutor to Israel to point out their crimes. And he used courtroom language often in his prophecies. So Isaiah speaking as a prosecutor. We find that type of language in this passage in Isaiah 50, which refers to Jesus' trials. So let's look at that a little bit more. Isaiah 50, 6 through, six through 11. The servant says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And I'm just going to stop real quick and say, okay, that's in past tense. We read it in past tense, but the Hebrew language does not have specific present tense, past tense, future tense kind of thing that has what's called aspect. But there is also the way that God speaks and sometimes the language that is used communicates that it's a done deal and it's so done that it's, he speaks as if it's already happened. So this is going to happen to the servant, but it is stated as if, I mean, we read it and it sounds like past tense. So I just wanted to bring that up for a moment. All right, verse seven. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they all will grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Uh, you know, I'm going to read that um, end of it later. But that's part of the passage as well. So we'll save that part. <laughs> Even though the gospel writers did not quote Isaiah 56, it was clearly fulfilled when Jesus was mocked, beaten, spit upon, and scourged. And the rest of this passage shows us that Jesus trusted his father. That is the point of the obedient servant here. He is trusting the Lord God. And I've highlighted in blue, and you can see it on your handout, Lord God is Yahweh. And Yahweh's name is used one, two, three, four times in this passage. 
Jesus is saying, Yahweh will help me and I will not be disgraced. I will not be ashamed. Jesus was able to endure his sufferings because he knew that God was with him through this unmerited abuse. And I want you to think about as we look at what we saw happen to Jesus. Do you see a man who was ashamed? Was he disgraced? I see the strongest, most honorable man of all eternity, our hero, who withstood torture and abuse without retaliating, without saying a word. He was strong. In Isaiah 58 and 9, there are questions and answers that show the innocence of Jesus. And they're highlighted here in red. You can see them. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who is he who will condemn me? That one is the most striking to me. These questions indicate that the servant was confident that there was never any case against him. He was not condemned for his personal sins. He had none. But he was condemned in our place because he was our representative bearing our sins. We know the Jewish leaders tried to find fault with Jesus and twisted his words against him. But these accusations would not have held up in an actual legitimate trial. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Who is he who will condemn me? Who condemned Jesus? Not Pilate, not Herod. He was declared innocent by the Romans who had the authority to declare him guilty. And then we see Isaiah's prophecy in this passage conclude with what we can call a gospel message. And it's to trust in the Lord or expect torment. And that's the point of what's going on here. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? That's a person who has a need. The person walking in darkness and and having no light themselves. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. So if you're walking in darkness, you have no light. Turn to the Lord. There is salvation from the suffering servant. From the Son of God. And whatever suffering we have to go to, go through, we can trust and rely on the Lord our God. We have that modeled by Jesus. He did it. We need to do that. And then the others that are referred to at the end of this passage are those who depend upon themselves and their own ways. And they reject the light of salvation and their end is described as well. They will bring torment upon themselves. Verse 11 says, look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This is what you'll have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. That's hellfire and brimstone preaching. Why? Because hell is real. The lake of fire is real. Eternal torment is real. I don't want any part of it. 
And I am so thankful that the one who was found not guilty that morning has taken away the guilty sentence from me. We saw in all of the passages in the Gospels and we see from this passage in Isaiah that Jesus stood confidently trusting God with his sinless perfection. He did it through the false accusations and the horrific physical and emotional abuse, those evil verbal attacks. I cringe when I think of it, and that's not a strong enough reaction to it. it it's horrific. He did it for me and for you. What a Savior. Humbling himself obediently to the plan of God. The timing is in God's hands. He was sovereign over all of it. This was predestined, but it didn't make any of it easy. Again, we see the strength of our Savior as he stood there and endured it. And then walked to the cross. And that's what we'll see next. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the only wise God, the true sovereign ruler of the universe. You are the judge. You know the crimes that have been committed against you. And you know the amazing, beautiful sinlessness of your son Jesus for every moment of his life on earth. So Jesus, we thank you for obeying your father humbly, for obeying his plan, for enduring what we call suffering. And I just feel like my words fall so far short of um, the pain and agony that you endured. And we're not finished looking at it yet. But thank you for trusting your God, our God, your father. Thank you for saving us through this work. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have given us your word. Thank you for enlightening our understanding. Help us to continue to, to grasp these truths and, and to have no doubt that it happened. And help us to walk with thankfulness and humility um, and know the truth that there is no condemnation for us now because of what you endured, Jesus, what you did for us. We thank you. We thank you for saving us, for giving us, for making us your friends, for making us your family, and for giving us hope for eternity with you, where there will be no more suffering. We praise you, Jesus, our King. Amen.